This is the Six Gun Justice Podcast with wordslingers Paul Bishop and Richard Brosh. Howdy and welcome. Thanks for tuning in for another action-packed episode of the Six Gun Justice Podcast, where we celebrate the blazing six-gun action of the Western genre in books, movies, TV, and any other media at home on the range. I'm Paul Bishop, and galloping along next to me is my co-host Richard Prosh. Howdy, pal. How are you? Fantastic. I'm happy to be on the trail again. So what's our posse chasing down this episode? We've been trying to balance our full-length episodes between Western movies, TV shows, and books, which means today we're going to take a look at a quartet of iconic early 20th century Western wordslingers. Will Cook, Max Brand, Luke Short, Ernest Haycox, as well as giving mention to a few others. Some of my vintage favorites. Great! Why don't you slap leather first? Slap leather. I love it when you talk cowboy to me. <laughs> get over it and get on with it. Rich, I'm constantly amazed by the generosity of the folks we know who are involved in the Western genre. After our cavalry episode, I was on the hunt for a couple of specific cavalry tales by Wade Everett, Fort Stark, and First Command, both of which were fairly pricey through the normal used book channels. However, Six-Gun Justice Honorary Deputy Jim Baird was gracious enough to send me duplicates of both books from his collection, a gesture for which I'm very appreciative and will definitely pay forward. So did you prefer one of the books over the other? In reality, both were great tales. Wade Everett started as a pseudonym used by Will Cook, but was later turned into a signet house name shared by Giles Lutz and others. However, both Fort Stark and First Command were written by Cook. Originally published in 1959, they were later reprinted as a double under Cook's own name. As I said, Fort Stark and First Command are cavalry tales, as were many of Cook's books, and there's a cool reason why. Apparently, as a kid, Cook was so fascinated by the cavalry, he ran away from home at 16, lied about his age, as one does, and joined the Army Cavalry in Texas. When the Army decided to switch the cavalry from horses to tanks and other mechanized vehicles, Cook transferred to the Air Force. During the war, while serving as a pilot in the South Pacific, his leg was shot up badly, but apparently healed enough for him to be able to be reassigned to duty in Alaska. For whatever reason, he stayed in Alaska after the war as a bush pilot before heading to California. Now, this is a guy with an injured leg, so despite this injury, he pursues such physically demanding jobs as deep-sea diver, salvage worker, lumberjack, judo teacher, and deputy sheriff, all before beginning to put words on paper. Eventually, it was his wife who encouraged him to write, and then to write Western specifically, instead of the ultimate judo book he was planning. Sounds a little bit like Louis L'Amour in a way. It does, doesn't it? Kind of the yandering thing that goes on, gathering all of these experiences and then using them to base so much of what you write about. Yeah. Cook turned out to be very prolific, producing 50 novels and over 100 short stories for the Western pulps. This is a remarkable output for anyone, but even more so as Cook accomplished it in 12 years, from when he started writing in 1952 to his death of a heart attack in 1964 which occurred while he was in the middle of building a schooner to sail around the world with his wife. Of his U.S. cavalry novels, his most famous are the trilogy Comanche Captives, The Peacemakers, and The Outcast. Comanche Captives was later filmed by John Ford as the movie Two Road Together. Uh, I haven't read the book, but I did enjoy the movie. 
The two books I read recently, Rich, are excellent examples of Cook's ability to bring the cavalry to life in all its glory and frustrations. I read Fort Stark first and found it to be an exercise in what I call claustrophobic tension building. It's set in 1890, after the Apaches had been driven out of Arizona, and the army had started abandoning its outposts, believing the area was under control. However, just over the border in Mexico, the last of the fighting Apache leaders, Diablito, has different plans, and a score to settle with a scalp hunter named Gentry. Gentry's this huge guy who's revealed by both the cavalry and the Apaches, but he has his own code of honor from which he refuses to deviate. It's kind of his only redeeming value. Finding Fort Savage abandoned, Diablito attacks a small force at Fort Redoubt. He kills the 40 men he finds there and burns the fort to the ground. Fort Stark is next on his list, and he quickly wipes out two patrols from the fort before beginning a siege of attrition against a small force still inside. He is determined to get to Gentry, who he knows is staying there. Strangely, Fort Stark is also a coming-of-age story under the direst of circumstances. It's narrated in the first person by 16-year-old Mel Lunsford, the son of Fort Stark's commanding officer, Colonel Lunsford. Diablito will kill everyone who stands in his way of getting to Gentry. Gentry will do whatever he has to to stay alive, and caught between the two, Colonel Lunsford has to prove he has more metal than Gentry and Diablito put together. As the furiously hot days and Indian attacks, both open and sneak attacks, take their toll and wear on, Mel Lunsford begins to make his own assessment of what it means to have honor and to be a man as he watches these three individuals interact. The long-drawn-out wait is superbly handled, as is the battle of nerves between all the involved parties, ratcheting up the tension while keeping the reader engaged. I was a little worried about that because I can get bored in these type novels, but this was really, really well done. I loved every word of Fort Stark as I read page after page, and I realized my heart was pounding and my breathing was coming shallow. That doesn't happen to me much anymore. Have you ever had that experience, Rich? I have. Um... <laughs> Maybe I haven't. Okay, thank you for that. Moving on. Good talk. <laughs> I was trying to think of an example of when that has happened to me. And I have to admit, that really hasn't happened to me since I was in my 20s. I can't think of a book or movie even. I think that choosing to be a professional or choosing to maybe analyze books and movies more closely as I watch and read, I may have lost that in some ways. Maybe that's a sad thing. I don't know. Not to me. I mean, I guess I don't mind, but I don't think I get caught up in books and movies like that anymore like I used to. I don't very often, as I said, but in this case, it was just kind of nice to have it happen over again. Yeah, for sure. First Command was also very good, and I recommend it. The lead character in this book is so strong, he kind of makes up for the missing edge of claustrophobic tension that defined Fort Stark. The storyline follows freshly minted West Point grad Lieutenant Jefferson Travis on his first tour of duty on the frontier. Travis, of course, wants to do things by the book and stay out of trouble. This is a standard cavalry trope, and I could just see things coming, and I was really, again, apprehensive because I hate these kind of idiots that they sometimes portray as cavalry officers, especially the younger ones. But the cool thing is here, Cook gives it a twist by giving Travis a big swath of backbone and a wagon train full of common sense. When difficult to impossible situations arise that the book doesn't even begin to cover, let alone have an answer for, Travis has no problems following his instincts, bucking his superiors, thinking outside the fort, and taking decisive action. It was really refreshing. 
Will Cook is an amazing storyteller, and I felt lucky to grab onto these two winners as my first exposure to him. I then found another of his novels, The Peacemakers, stashed away on my shelves, and I can't wait to dig into it. They really sound amazing. I think it's interesting how doing this podcast keeps exposing both of us to vintage authors we either didn't know about or have never even heard of. It really speaks to the width and depth of the Western genre. I still feel like I'm only scratching the surface of all the books and writers I want to read. Me too. And like you, I discovered a couple of authors that I thought were new to me. One of them was, and one of them was actually an old favorite, hiding behind a pseudonym, as so often happens. Lewis Trimble was an accomplished writer in three separate genres, perhaps best known as a science fiction author of such titles as The City Machine and The Wandering Variables, he also wrote hard-boiled crime novels like Stab in the Dark and Bring Back Her Body and thrilling traditional westerns. I read Siege at High Meadow. It begins with lawman Hart Cordell laying in wait for Mont Lansford, one-third of an army gold heist. Cordell has already captured one of the other two men, Lebao, and uses him as bait to snare Lansford. But when he does catch the headman, it is far too easy, and it's a long transport back to jail. Could it be Lansford setting a trap of his own? I won't spoil it, but you can guess that he might be. There's some good twists and turns in this one, and I especially like how Lansford's character is drawn. So often we have either a Confederate or a Union man, but in this case we've got a villain who has sided with both armies during the war, whoever was most profitable to him at the time, and wherever he could find the gold. This sets up a rich backstory to the character that makes him more interesting than the run-of-the-mill villain. It's highly recommended. Who else did you discover? Well, as I said, this was more of a rediscovery. It's been a while since I read anything by Giles Lutz. He was born in 1910 and started his writing career turning out short stories for the pulps before transitioning to Western novels in the mid-50s. He won a Spur Award from WWA in 1962 for his novel The Honey Ocker and wrote right up until his death in 1982. Here's the thing. Lutz uses numerous pen names, including James Chafin, Wade Everett, Alex Hawk, Hunter Ingram, Gene Thompson, and Reese Sullivan. As Sullivan, he turned in several ace double entries, including Nemesis of Circle A. I picked up Nemesis of Circle A not knowing it was Giles Lutz, and I had to do a little research to find that out. Nemesis of Circle A starts out with a very familiar Western trope. When he was a kid, Lee Martin watched helplessly as Cletus Ashbaugh and his men from the Circle A ranch burned out his family's Texas homestead. That seems to be just a standard action-adventure trope, doesn't it? The kid who watches his family either massacred, burned out, something. We see it over and over again. Yeah, it's the Mac Bolan Executioner, Men's Adventure, Marvel Comics, The Punisher, and we've seen it in several westerns. Yeah, there would be a lot of genres that wouldn't exist if this trope didn't exist as motivation. So Lee's home has been completely trashed. And during the following years, he's helpless to prevent his parents' decline, a downfall he directly attributes to the Ashbow Raid, and especially the savagery of Ramrod Ori Pratt. Pratt, of course, humiliates Lee's father, and his father can't ever live up to what he believes he should again. It's a sad decline. So Lee has to watch this happen. You know, sometimes I wish the book would just start after all of this stuff has been accomplished. Let's just get on with the revenge rather than the setup, because it's so familiar. I agree. As this traditional actioner opens, eight years have passed, and Lee rides into the town nearest the Circle A. There's like maybe a page and a half of Lee coming into town, right? 
And then we have this long ass flashback, which, you know, Pete Branville would be pulling out his hair because he and I talked about this one time that he, like you, he hates that and says, why don't they just start the book with the savaging of the ranch or start the book with the kid coming back, but don't try to do both, right? I agree because we as readers know the tropes. You just really have to indicate to us that this is revenge for his family being slaughtered, burned out, whatever it may be, and get on with the story. Otherwise, books like this have a tendency to lose me. Yeah. So the main story is that eight years have passed and Lee rides into the town nearest the Circle A ranch. He immediately encounters Ori Pratt, who doesn't recognize him, of course. They scuffle, they watch old Cletus drop over from a heart attack, and Lee winds up in jail with a sympathetic sheriff who likewise doesn't recognize him. Upon his release, Lee travels over to the Circle A and secures a job at his old enemy's place. He does so because of Ashbow's daughter, Kate, the one Ashbow Lee does not hate. In fact, he always admired her growing up. Kate does recognize him, but pretends not to. Pratt still doesn't know Lee, even when they're working together. He assumes he's a stock detective and panics. Pratt isn't just a bad guy toward other ranchers. He's been ripping off his employer as well. And now he fears Kate is on to him. Everything plays out as you would expect, with a pretty slow burn at the beginning and a suspense-filled ending that actually had me turn the pages fairly quickly to see how it would end. So overall, would you recommend it? I would. Rich, we've talked about those Western wordslingers in the past, like Louis L'Amour and Zane Gray, whose names are known by people who have never even read a Western. Frederick Schiller Faust is another of those Western scribes whose name has been woven into the fabric of pulp culture, but not as Frederick Faust necessarily, but as Max Brand. Born in 1892, he wrote scores of novels and short stories, not only as Max Brand, but under a whole corral of pseudonyms most of which have eventually been reprinted as by Max Brand. Arguably, his best and most well-known novel is Destry Rides Again. It's from 1930 and has stayed in print now for over 70 years. It was adapted for the movies three times and spawned a one-season television western series. Personally, I'm more fond of the adaptations of Max Brand's work than his actual prose, Destry Rides Again being a prime example, but I'll give Dead or Alive a nod as a book packed with action, some fair twists, and dastardly Pulp Fiction-style villains. Nels Gray gets picked as second in a duel in a sticky situation and ends up on the run. Befriended by a good-hearted gunman named Lanky, Nels settles accounts in typical fashion, but the author keeps things interesting with his unique style of wordplay. What bothers me is even more than some of his peers Brand tends to restate the obvious. So if a sentence reads, we drove them dogies up the trail, the next sentence will say, yes, we did. And a third sentence might add some dialogue. Good to drive those doggies up the trail. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do. But I think part of that is down to the fact that many of Brand's stories were reprinted from the pulps where he was being paid by the word. John D. MacDonald said somebody once asked him why he wrote bang, 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 instead of just bang. And MacDonald said his way earns him five more cents. <laughs> wow. Talk about getting more buck for your bang. Oh, ouch. Really? Okay. You get points for being quick. So I guess that's worth a rim shot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll be here all week. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be here all week. I'll be here all week. I'm not saying Brand overly pads his work. It wouldn't be as popular as it is if he wasn't an excellent storyteller. 
And as I mentioned, Dead or Alive is a good place to start if you're not familiar with Max Brand. I'll also vouch for his Silvertip series, which I enjoy. I also like his Silvertip books, as well as a couple of his historicals written as George Chalice. But in reality, I've kind of cherry-picked Brand over the years, reading a few of his novels here and there. But I've never caught the fever like our buddy up in Canada, Andrew Salmon, who is a lover of Brand's work, and is probably going to be disappointed in me when I say I find Brand himself more fascinating than his books. He was clearly an incredibly prolific writer in many different genres. This is the guy who created Dr. Kildare and so many other characters and stories that the movie studios couldn't get enough of him. He also had this prodigious knowledge of European history, and he was a true romantic when it came down to the chivalry of those times, which showed through in the many historicals he wrote. But it was still Westerns that paid his bills. There's a possibly apocryphal story about an unpublished Foss having an opportunity to meet Robert H. Davis, who was an editor for pulp giant Munsey Publications. According to the legend, Davis gave Faust a brief plot idea and sent him down the hall to another room where there was a typewriter, telling him to flesh out the story. Six hours later, Faust returned to Davis with a completed 7,800-word story, which Davis bought for publication. And at that point, Faust was on his way to becoming Max Brand, Evan Evans, a fistful of other aliases. If it didn't happen that way, it should have done. Absolutely. You know, this is a guy who had a dangerously debilitating heart condition, mental health issues that led him to Zurich to consult Carl Jung, who advised him to live as simply as possible. Faust completely rejected this advice, going to Italy, running a large villa, and adopted a lifestyle of extravagance, acting if time, money, and gallant gestures were in never-ending abundance, while besieged in private by debts and doubts. But his debts did drive him to write between a million and a million and a half words every year. With that kind of output, it's hard to see where he would have had time to live the extravagant lifestyle. I know. We're going to have to ask our own million-word-a-year friend, James Reasoner, who I think has the same lifestyle, how he does it. <laughs> right. Just don't tell his wife, Livia, who has to put up with him while keeping up her own prodigious output and publishing duties. Before we turn the page on Frederick Faust, a.k.a. Max Brand, and 18 other pseudonyms, it's astonishing to think he wrote over 300 Western novels, hundreds and hundreds of short stories, and many historical novels, as well as creating characters like Dr. Kildare, and churned out movie scripts by the Ream, all of this while battling ill health and mental challenges. For those interested in learning more about Faust, I recommend grabbing a copy of Max Brand, The Big Westerner, by Robert Easton. While not as amazingly prolific as Max Brand, his contemporary Frederick Glidden, best known as Luke Short, was no piker. In his career, he sold over 50 Western novels and more than 100 short stories to the top Western pulps of the day. He finally obtained a contract to produce two books a year for Bantam Books, but depression severely curtailed his output. The publisher eventually used a ghostwriter to complete the contract, but didn't get the expected sales. This led to Louis L'Amour getting a chance to deliver paperback originals for Bantam, and the rest is publishing history. I find Luke Short interesting because, like Max Brand, he struggled with depression almost all his life. It really began to affect his writing after World War II, where he served with the Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to the CIA. After the war, he hit a writing wall. He tried writing screenplays, but these were rejected. He founded a mining company, which quickly failed. His original stories were plagiarized by others for which he received no compensation. He tried to break out of the Western genre, but he couldn't get a foothold anywhere else. 
It's kind of sad. But that said, for me, every Luke short book provides a master class in creating vibrant characters who embody the courage, toughness, and loyalty of American frontiersmen. Short was a founding member of the Western Writers of America. He offered help and advice to many young writers, including Brian Garfield, who would go on to become a best-selling Western and thriller writer. Short's advice to Garfield is still relevant today and applicable to any genre. Take out all the Western trappings. Your story should depend on characters and behavior. If it still works after you get rid of the cliches, it's a story. I've never paid that much attention to Luke Short, at least not enough to form an opinion beyond the obvious. He's a good, solid Western writer who had his day. Since watching the movie Ramrod a couple months back, which was based on one of Luke Short's stories, and diving into his work for this episode, I'm delighted and surprised by the depth and hard edges of his work. So, Paul, I recently read Luke Short's book, The Whip, which was originally published in 1957 as Doom Cliff. It's a solid action piece about a stage line superintendent who encounters corruption and moral decay on the Midland Line, one of the U.S. mail routes from Salt Lake to Colorado. Controlled by Division Agent Lou Made It, the run is one big headache full of lazy drunks and unreliable schedules. Enter Will Gannon, a tough-as-nails hombre who knows the business and understands what needs to be done. Gannon's got a temper and a strict work ethic that puts him immediately at odds with all the men he encounters. Gannon is kind of a dark anti-hero, and The Whip is a pretty gritty book. When Gannon hangs a man in cold blood, I knew I wasn't in Louis L'Amour territory, but traveling a hard-edged noir landscape. My only complaint is the ending doesn't quite live up to the story's complex setup. It's a little too neat, as if Short reached his contracted word count and wrapped things up neat and quick. I'm going to recommend one of Luke Short's most popular westerns, Hard Case, as a perfect example of his pulse-pounding style of storytelling. Anti-hero Dave Coyle has a reputation, to say the least. Folks believe no jail could hold him, there wasn't a scaffold high enough to hang him, a hundred men with guns were scared to catch him, and the law dreaded his name. He was an outlaw who would fight any man anywhere. They called him the hard case, a renegade who happily gambles his life against any odds and laughs while he does it. The plot gets a kickstart when the postman sees a letter addressed to Dave Coyle. He knows trouble is coming to the town of Yellow Jacket and guns will soon be blazing. Coyle's face is plastered all over the town on wanted posters offering $7,000 dead or alive, but there's not a man in the territory fast enough to take him. As word spreads, though, every man in town grabs a gun, driven by eagerness and fear in equal measures. But those guns won't stop Coyle from returning. Of course not, otherwise we wouldn't have a story. When Coyle slips into town, under cover of darkness, he's wearing his guns, but he hopes he doesn't have to use them. He's come for Carol McPhee, the only woman who ever saw any good in him, and a woman who needs his help, desperately. In a town where every man wants him dead, Coyle plans on doing a good deed or die trying. I recently watched The Hangman from 1959, screenplay by Dudley Nichols based on the Luke short story of the same name. Despite another wrap-up of an otherwise complicated series of events with a too tidy, unlikely Hollywood ending, I gotta tell you, Paul, The Hangman is a tough, suspense-filled gem of a picture, which I really enjoyed. Directed by Michael Curtis, who went on to The Comancheros with John Wayne in 1961, The Hangman stars Robert Taylor as U.S. Marshal Mac Bovard, and it co-stars Tina Louise, Fess Parker, and Jack Lord, a great lineup. 
Taylor is supremely convincing as a cynical, world-weary marshal known by friend and foe alike as the Hangman. He's out to track down John Butterfield, a robbery suspect played by Jack Lord, whose face Bovard has never seen. Tina Louise is spot-on as Butterfield's old girlfriend, Cela Jennings, a beautiful young widow struggling to stay afloat. When Bovard offers her 500 bucks to betray Johnny by pointing him out, she's reluctant. In one of my favorite scenes, Cela says, Do you think everybody can be bought? Bovard replies matter-of-factly, Why, yes. I'm not a sentimentalist. I've seen too much of life. In his role as an amiable sheriff, Fess Parker almost steals the show from both Taylor and Louise, and if the movie starts to drag in the last quarter, which isn't always good for a 90-minute flick, it's not because the actors weren't giving it their all. There's a cameo by Lauren Green, and there's a wonderful performance by Mabel Albertson as a hotel busybody with the hots for Taylor that also add to the enjoyment. The Hangman is easily in the upper tier of my favorites, and would have ranked higher had that second act and ending played out just a little faster and a little different. Now I need to track down Luke's short story to compare it with the movie. So, in short, you liked it. Stop it. For my part, I watched 1948's Blood on the Moon, which we mentioned in our recent Noir on the Range episode. Based on the Luke short novel Gunman's Chance, it's a brooding psychological thriller directed by Robert Weiss, starring Robert Mitchum, Barbara Bel Geddes, and Robert Preston. Mitchum is cast as Jim Carrey, an honest cowboy drifter, and Bel Geddes is rancher John Lufton's savvy daughter. The story is a taut thriller, wherein Gary's new employers covet the Lufton ranch and set out to get it. What carries the film above the usual B-movie script is the stark black-and-white cinematography by Nicholas Musaraka who is known for his noir pictures like Out of the Past and Bell Luton's RKO horror films. There's some great action in this one, including a gut-busting fist fight between Mitchum and Preston. A satisfying wrap-up probably puts this one a notch higher than The Hangman, but now, like you, I'm going to have to track down and read Short's novel. Here's a fun fact. When Fred Glidden found publishing success under the name Luke Short, his wife thought she would try writing fiction. Anything you can do, I can do better. <laughs> Using a woman's point of view, an anomaly for the pulps, she began selling stories on a regular basis to rangeland romance for many years. But that's not the end of the story. Not to be left out of what was now a family cottage industry, Fred's brother Jonathan began writing and selling Western stories under the pen name Peter Dawson, a pseudonym based on his favorite brand of whiskey. Peter Dawson would later become a house name owned by a publishing company, and used by many different authors for the next two decades. The final writer in our quartet of early 20th century greats, Ernest Haycox, was born in Oregon in 1899. After spending his boyhood in logging camps, shingle mills, ranches, and in small towns, he served with a National Guard regiment stationed along the Mexican border prior to World War I. He would later be sent to France with the American Expeditionary Forces during the war. After the war, he received a bachelor's degree in journalism from the University of Oregon and married in 1925. With two dozen novels and more than 300 short stories to his name, Haycox, like his peers, climbed the ladder from the pulps to the slicks to become a commanding presence in Collier's and the Saturday Evening Post. As Six Gun Justice podcast listeners well know, his 1937 story Staged to Lorsberg was made into the movie Stagecoach, starring John Wayne and directed by John Ford. Several additional movies can be directly attributed to Haycox, including Union Pacific, Bugles in the Afternoon, 
and the far country. Trail Town, a popular 1941 novel by Haycox, was adapted at least twice, once for the screen as Abilene Town, and once for the comics as Western Marshall. The screen version came first in 1946 from United Artists, starring Randolph Scott and directed by Edward L. Marin and produced by Herbert Bieberman. The comic book adaptation was published by Dell's Four Color Comics in 1953. In his book Shooting Scripts from Pulp Westerns to Film, Bob Hertzberg makes the case that Abilene Town suffered from producer Bieberman's leftist leanings. He offers a good synopsis of the movie and a fair critique of the damage done to Haycock's original story. I agree with some of his conclusions, but I think Hertzberg puts too much emphasis on potential socialist motivations. Just plain bad casting, weak writing, and misguided concepts undermine the story well enough all by themselves. Randolph Scott is one of my favorite cowboy actors. Given a better cast to work with, he might have pulled off a more convincing portrayal. As it is, he seems sort of ill at ease in the role and not nearly as tough as the protagonist Dan Mitchell needs to be. Rhonda Fleming plays Sherry Green. The character is no longer the wife of prosecuting attorney Ford Green, as she is in the book. Instead, she's now the daughter of merchant Ed Balder. She's petulant and whiny, and where Haycox eventually puts Dan and Sherry together, the movie ends with her in the arms of a homesteader, Henry Dreiser, played by Lloyd Bridges, instead. As you said, Ford Green, an important main character in the book, doesn't show up in the film. Just the opposite of the book, Henry's first love is Rita, a hard luck girl of the streets, who ends up with Dan's friend Tom Leathers, another no-show in the adaptation. Here, we meet Rita as an older, wisecracking, and kicking saloon girl, played by Anne Dvorak, belting out big band songs and ending up in the arms of Mitchell, who literally ties an apron around her waist. <laughs> Let's see how well that goes over at our house tonight. <laughs> the character of Dan Mitchell fared better with Dell's Four Color Comics in 1953. Beginning with Western Marshall, Four Color Comics number 534, Dell's official adaptation of Trail Town, the character again found his edge and the complex cow town scenario of the novel. All the important characters are back from the novel, and the action is very accurately rendered by Everett Raymond Kinsler. The comic book and Dell paperback edition of Trail Town offer similar covers, both nicely reflecting the atmosphere of a story not yet seen faithfully rendered on the screen. Dan Mitchell appeared again in Four Color Comic number 591 and Four Color Comic number 613, but I've yet to discover if these were based on short stories by Haycox. There's a 1966 Avon paperback collection of Haycox stories reprinted directly from the pulps, Powder Smoke, and other stories, some of which were almost 40 years old at the time of publication, and these were written by Haycox, and we both checked this paperback out for the show. What'd you think, Paul? Haycox's strength was in his characters, men and women who become heroes and villains not by the superficial color of their cap or by overly indulgent soul-searching, but simply by the choices they made. And these stories absolutely emphasize that. From Peach Murgatroyd, the dusty who wasn't built to be a killer but doesn't shy away from killing, to the wandering Silver Bob, this collection of rascals and rapscallions, lapdogs and owl hoots, has a wry sense of humor throughout and plenty of action. I really recommend it if you can track down a copy. As we said when we began this episode, there are so many Western writers, both vintage and new, to discover. If listeners want to try out any of the novels we've mentioned in this episode, 
There will be a list in the show notes and on our website. There's the clanging of the truck wagon triangle, partner, telling us to wrap up this episode with our shootouts and shoutouts. Thanks to Mike Bray and Wolfpack Publishing for being our premier sponsor. Thanks also to our other sponsors, author Chris Enns and the Western Writers of America. Thanks to Roundup Magazine for their support in promoting our podcast. Thanks to our crew of Patreon backers for their financial support. If you are enjoying the podcast, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash sixgunjustice and consider giving a small monthly stipend to help us keep moseying along. Donations are appreciated, but clearly not expected or necessary. We're grateful for all our listeners and truly happy to have you sharing this trail ride with us. Next Monday, Paul will be hosting a six-gun justice speed listen featuring everything you need to know about the history of the coin-operated horses that used to ride the range in front of every market in town, all in under 15 minutes, give or take. And in two weeks, we'll be back with episode 28 of the Six-Gun Justice podcast. And don't forget our Six-Gun Justice conversation segments every Wednesday, when either Paul or I get to hang around the Six-Gun Justice corral, talking with writers and friends who love the Western genre as much as we do. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and keep your eyes on the horizon. Adios for now. We're out of here. Let's ride. Join us in two weeks for another full-length episode of the Six-Gun Justice Podcast, sponsored by author Chris Enns, the Western Writers of America, and Wolfpack Publishing. Publishers of such best-selling Western series as The Legend of the Black Rose and Concho.